News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkist podcast from the nonprofit newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Harry Siegel, here with Christina Greer, professor, and Katie Onan, reporter. Hello. Hello. Hi, Hi, Harry. Hey. So, as New York claws its way out of the pandemic, there may be even steeper challenges ahead. Mayor Adams this week told all city agencies to cut spending by 3% this fiscal year, and in just a bit, we're going to be talking with Dick Ravitch, whose resume includes stints as the head of the Empire State Development Corporation and the MTA in the 1970s, um, and as the Lieutenant Governor of New York in 2009 and 2010, and we should mention a significant donor to the city. Uh, he's joined a few minutes into that conversation by William Glasgow, a Senior Director for Public Finance at the Volcker Alliance, who has a new pod coming out. And the two of them just wrote an op-ed for the Daily News this week about the fiscal cliffs the city is now sailing toward. It's good timing for this conversation. I suppose the Dow plummeted by nearly 1,300 points on Tuesday. Uh, But first, let's talk about just some of the stories from another jam-packed week in New York. Dozens of single men at a Manhattan intake center didn't receive beds on Monday night in the latest and largest violation of the city's legal obligation to provide shelter as an influx of immigrants being bussed up from Texas has helped overwhelm what had already been an overstretched and deeply strained shelter system. It's worth noting that uh, this is, as noted, it's been multiple times that the Adams administration has violated this legal policy, whereas I think under Bill de Blasio, it was way fewer. So that's a concern. I know the shelters are are, are really um, strained, but I guess they always have been. They were strained before this influx. Greg Abbott's been bringing up from Texas, and and this seems to be the straw that's uh, breaking the system's back, and and this legal obligation to provide shelter the same day that people come in. Uh, Arsenic, NYCHA, we had Greg Smith on the pod last week to discuss his reporting on the test. Uh, That was on the Friday Memorial Day weekend. The next Friday, Mayor Adams said, actually, it was just a lab error, and then showed up to drink the water at the Reese houses uh, and say more or less case closed. However, NYCHA tenants are angry after this week of scary communications and shifting narratives, and they're not the only ones. Uh, the federal monitor overseeing NYCHA announced on Tuesday that he'd not only be investigating this mess, first reported by the city, but that he'd be doing so along with New York City's inspector general who, unlike the monitor, has subpoena power and thus can compel city and NYCHA officials to testify under oath about what happened here. And then also this week, uh, City Council Speaker Adrian Adams came out in support of a bill banning solitary confinement, sponsored by public advocate Jemani Williams, co-sponsored by veto-proof majority council members, but opposed by Mayor Adams. Uh, Mayor Adams, that that's still... That looks like a loss. Mayor Adams definitely took a loss with another legislature when Kathy Hochul on the first day of school surprised signed this bill that had been sitting on her desk for three months. The caps uh, class sizes in New York City. Uh, the mayor and the school's chancellor have said that amounts to a an unfunded mandate that just from K to five, and this covers K to 12, went up costing the city $500 million a year. And lastly, Katie, let's talk about the big news in New York, which started in February and involves piggies, but not those piggies. 
So yeah, I wrote this week um, about a bill that was introduced earlier this year, back in February, that would ban the sale of guinea pigs, especially in big box stores like PetSmart and Petco. Um, the city shelters, the ACC shelters have been completely overrun with guinea pigs. People get them because they're so cute, but they don't realize, like all relationships, it requires lots of time and commitment and special stuff. And I think people return them very quickly. And the other issue is um, guinea pigs are hard to identify the gender. People pair them up thinking they have two males or two females, but they don't. And it's hard to teach abstinence to guinea pigs. So they become pregnant. And that is what we've been seeing. And, and ACC shelters have now hundreds of guinea pigs. <laughs> they have hundreds of guinea It sounds silly, but it's a real problem. And this is something that is an easy fix. When the city banned the sale of rabbits, um, the spokeswoman ACC told me that surrenders of rabbits like almost immediately declined. So that's the issue we had. Um, there was some political drama because I was told by multiple people that Speaker Adrian Adams was reluctant to have this hearing um, on guinea pigs because there's so much tension about the horse carriages. So people are a little skittish around animals. Um, this seems like an easy fix. If you want to get a guinea pig, please adopt a guinea pig. The ACC will... ACC will teach you how to care for them. They will come spade and neuter. That's the other issue. Only two vets in the whole city can spare neuter guinea pigs. They're not very good under anesthesia. It's a very expensive process. But if you adopted ACC, they come spayed or neutered. You can have your guinea pigs. And that's that. Not the biggest story, but it's still, you know, as the Greg Smith called me, the critter correspondent. It's it's important. <laughs> I think it's also in, in important to remind people it's like abstinence only education doesn't work it doesn't you know, it's since we can't provide contraception to these guinea pigs we need to remember not just in guinea pig land but also across the country for school districts that are only teaching abstinence only it doesn't work anyway a lesson for us all so let, should we talk about the fiscal cliffs i've got a beautiful transition here <laughs> so so malthus the economist the dismal science, the whole thing is like, look, you know, the population is going to expand exponentially. The food supply is going to expand arithmetically. We're in trouble. This uh, is a big moment in, um, in, in history and ideas. And half of Europe responds to this because when he talks about uh, population and birth rates, he expresses all this in terms of marriage because, in, you know, in his construction that necessarily precedes uh, uh, copulation and recreation. Half of Europe responds by raising the marriage age from like 13 and 14 at the time to like 17, 18, 22. The result is not any decrease in the population in Europe, uh, but the creation of a generation of bastards, to use the term from the time, illegitimate children, as people continued to copulate. So there's lots of things you can put down on paper and say what they mean. And then you have to go out and put these plans into action. And with that, let's bring in Dick Ravage, who's been in the arena at the table of moments of great financial strain for the uh, city and the state to get his view on where New York is at now and the Scylla and Charybdis of the pandemic and the shutdown and the fiscal cliffs looming ahead. And why, despite all that, he's pretty optimistic in the long run about where New York is going. Uh, welcome, Dick. Please fill our listeners in. Let me try to give this a little perspective. 
over the years, one year by one, New York State now has a higher tax rate per capita than any state in the country. Number two, it has the most amount of debt per capita as any state in the country. Recent events are just threatening to accelerate that very trend. Now, what's most interesting about it is I sit in my office and I look out on Lexington Avenue, and every morning I see more people than I've seen the previous morning. There is no question in my mind that New York is recovering. There is no question in my mind that despite all the burdens I just related to, that the seductions of New York are so overwhelming that this city is going to thrive and grow. And that the newspaper is going to be an important part of it. Now, let me say, Am I worried? Yes. Does it take constant discipline to make sure that the excesses are not too great to cause a move out? Do we know how many people are going to continue to work at home? When are we going to overcome the 23% vacancy rate that exists in commercial space? When are we going to fix Penn Station? We ain't going to wait, as the governor suggests, until Vornado builds office buildings, we got to go ahead with it. That's going to cost money. The federal government owes the Federal Unemployment Insurance Fund almost $8 billion. It's not being repaid, so the Fed is taxing all employers in New York State. What political, locational effect that will have, I don't know yet. But all I can tell you is, at the risk of repeating myself, the attractions of New York. First of all, cities, and particularly New York, the greatest civilizing institution that mankind ever created. Where young people go to meet other young people, to watch sports, opera, movies, concerts, theater. There's no place in the world like it. Um, I eat lunch at a restaurant that frequently. Uh, and the owner is a good friend. And he judges New York City's recovery by how many young people come to drink in his place at the end of every day to meet other young people. It's a great dating location. And every week, there are more people than there were the previous week. That says it all, as far as I'm concerned. Well, Richard, I did not expect you to opine on dating in New York City, but that's, I guess, for another podcast. But um, two questions. The first is, which restaurant? And then the second is, if you could put into historical context, you know, in your daily news op-ed, really discussing these fiscal cliffs, but if you can kind of put into context... Just the challenges the city's facing financially, how bad it is now, how bad it will be, and and how it compares to other financial challenges in the past. Well, 
you know, I was involved in 1975. That came about because the city went to the state, said, we need more help. And Rockefeller said, I don't, don't got any money to give you, but I'm going to make it easier for you to borrow. So we got the legislation to pass a law that enabled the city to borrow amounts of money that the mayor estimated he would be, he would be receiving or the city would be receiving a subsequent year. Well, those estimates were aspirations. They weren't calculations. And they kept borrowing and the banks kept underwriting it. They couldn't say no to Nelson Rockefeller. And finally, when Hugh Carey became governor, the bank said, whoa, we're not going to lend this stuff anymore. And that's what happened. So all of a sudden, the city had close to $7 billion of debt and no capacity to repay it. And I mean, there wasn't anything fundamentally wrong with New York's economy. Yes, there was a bit of a national recession in 1975, but that's not what caused New York City's problem. What caused New York City's problem, at the risk of repeating myself, was that they owed $7 billion that they had no business borrowing in the first place. So we devised all kinds of mechanisms uh, to to repay that debt over time and restructure it. And then the federal government stepped in with emergency aid and New York was well on its way to recovery. Um, so I am constantly warning, not because I believe the apocalypse is around the corner, but because I think that Unless people like us and like your newspaper constantly point out the danger, the pressure to spend money is politically so much more powerful than less that we need a counterforce to hold back, to restrain public spending and to make it realistic in light of its resources. And we have to make sure that our resources are not overtaxed to cause locational decisions. You know, I hear from people all the time who move to Florida. But statistically, I don't know how important that is, since I also see apartments on Fifth Avenue and Central Park West being sold for unbelievable sums of money. So New York is not dead, it's threatened, and it requires a level of budget prudence that it's always required, but it's more acute now because of what we refer to as the fiscal cliff, because it is enjoying the beneficence of all the federal generosity of last year, and that money's going to run out. And de Blasio spent some of it on new educational program, terribly worthwhile program. I'm all excited about it. But how are we going to fund it when that federal money runs out? Uh, those are the kinds of questions that we uh, are trying to 
adjust and deal with. That's why Glasgow Illinois in our article in the Daily News said, whoa, be careful. Uh, you're on the precipice. And before I kick, kick it to Chrissy, what is that restaurant? We'll, you know, the, the listeners will want to know what restaurant the uh, the the mines are dining at. Docks. Docks, of course. A, a favorite of uh, former Governor Andrew Cuomo, too. <laughs> yeah, well, I used to run into him there, but we never spoke. <laughs> Shade, I love it. Um, so thanks so much for joining us. You know, this has me thinking of Esther Fuchs's book, Mayors and Money, um, that's having its 30th anniversary right now. Uh, and so I guess I wanted to ask if you could sit down with Eric Adams, Kathy Hochul, and members of the legislature and the Senate in Albany, what would you tell them as you ring the alarm? I would say essentially what we said in the article. And I think that the state has has actually handled this pretty well. They're not spending all the money now. Uh, and uh, but the pressures are increasing uh, to spend money constantly, and the composition of the legislature is such that there's more pressure to spend than not to spend. You know, we have all the years until recently the Republicans controlled the state senate. That will constitute a break on public spending. That's no longer the case. And the pressures are enormous to spend money, to do good things. Uh, these are not improper uh, uh, wishes that they're funding. They're perfectly proper. But when you have constituency that is a recipient of public beneficence, there and very few constituents who are concerned about taxes and debt, uh, it creates a different political formula. And all I'm trying to say and will continue to say is that we have to be very, very careful uh, that these new pressures to spend more money, as well as to pay prior obligations like the unemployment insurance fund that I mentioned earlier, uh, that they don't overwhelm uh, our population to the point where we really have a serious adverse effect. What are you drinking? What am I drinking? Yes. <laughs> a little homemade green juice. Like Mayor Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, Sorry. That's, that's the, no, it's, the, he, the guy likes morning. smoothies. <laughs> he does. He does. I don't know. I've never seen a green drink. I'm channeling my inner Eric Adams. <laughs> I'm going to go start knocking down some sheds and, and throwing over some dirt bikes. <laughs> so one thing um, you both wrote in the op-ed is just how much of the municipal revenue comes from commercial property taxes. Um, and now that that is threatened because of the shift from you know, being in the office five days a week to a hybrid or fully remote schedule for some offices. Now, this type of workplace has been debated since the pandemic. Employees say that they like the flexibility and they, were, they are as, if not more productive at home, at least a few days a week. Um, so if this becomes the future of work in New York City, 
how can the city adjust to it in terms of taxes? Can they recoup some of that money other ways? Um, I believe you say it is 19%, um, which is amounts to 600 million. Um, at least that's how much it could cost the city at the end of the fiscal year in terms of property tax revenue. So if you want to go into that, um, if William, if you want to start just to talk a little bit about what that could mean for us in the future. Oh, sure, Katie, that, that, that's correct. And when we say 19%, that's those are class four buildings, the high class mm -hmm. office buildings, retail, uh, hotels, uh, but really focused on those high, the, the, the high class office buildings, which we're building more and more of. Uh, the $600 million estimate came from uh, came from the city controller, and that's just for one year. Uh, I work in a building in Lower Manhattan when I'm there. That's that's dead empty. Uh, Dick's Dick's office building in Midtown, as far as I can tell, I never see anybody in the lobby. So this may be a long term problem, and it's one of it's one of many things that's feeding a structural deficit that the city has going out three, four, uh, three, four years. That's as, that's as far as they project. Uh, so the city is either going to have to find other revenues, which is, which is difficult. It, it's going to have to, or it's going to have to shrink its workforce. Um, it's already cut the, the education budget uh, or, or, or I don't know what really there's, uh, there's, there's no clear answer for that. It's, and it's interesting that this, um, this decline in in office uh, property occupancy, not just in New York but around the country, is having a big effect on the commercial mortgage-backed securities market. That's that's how uh, that's how these buildings are financed. So it's becoming more interest rates are rising, demand is falling. It's becoming more difficult to finance these buildings as well. Uh, it's a it's a real hairball. Let me uh, add to what Bill said, if I may. I think number one, as I suggested earlier, I'm not smart enough to tell you how long it's going to take, but this is not a permanent condition. It'll ease every year. There will be more people moving back and more space will be occupied. And when we, what is really hurting is the building trades, the construction industry. Nobody is building office buildings today because of such a high vacancy rate. So you have two parts to this problem. One, the city revenue shortfall, plus the employment decline. And all of this is going to get reshaped over the next umpteen years. And I'm not so smart as to tell you how many years, but believe me, my grandchildren will live in a city that has full occupancy. Do you agree? I mean, with Bill, do you kind of agree with that assessment in terms of things easing as each month kind of passes on? I, I wouldn't necessarily say each month. Uh, right now, the city is running about 40 ish percent. So it's in, in its commercial occupancy, uh, office occupancy. Uh, uh, according to the, the Castle survey. So New York City is doing about 10 percentage points worse than uh, the big cities in Texas, for example, and about the same as as uh, as cities in California. But how long how long this takes, you know, the, the mayor says, come back to work, come back to work. Uh, at the same time, KPMG is 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 
taking new, opening a new headquarters in Hudson Yards and is shrinking its footprint, telling the telling the the very highly paid consultants they can work from home, they can work <laughs> from their 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 clients' offices. Uh, it's it's going to take a while. One encouraging factor is that that uh, New York is one of the leading cities for retaining college graduates. So so kids come to New York to go to school and they stay. Um, I think there's only there's only one red state where that's true, and that's that's Texas. But New York is doing really really well in that regard. So that's that's encouraging. Bill, I want to just jump in for a quick follow up because. As a college professor, I'm with young people now and talking to them about work and how they think about work in not just COVID, but, you know, as they, they go into the, the workforce. And a lot of them are just saying, well, you know, I don't see why I have to be in an office building. Their whole ethos of how work is done, right? So it's like, if you want me to work eight hours a day, and if I go into the office building, I'm there physically, but like, realistically, I'm only actually getting work done for a few hours. So why can't I just stay home and do that? Because you're actually getting the same amount of productivity, if not more. This is sort of, you know, from the conversations I've had with, with young people. And so that being said, what happens if these projections actually don't go the way we, you all want them to? What happens if we do have not just young people, but, you know, folks who have been productive at home who say, I actually do not want to go back to an, an office building, COVID or no COVID, because I'm actually more productive at home and I can do either a side business, I can work for you, I can, you know, be with my family, whatever it may be. What are some projections in the next few years to come if we have a cultural shift of people who just say it's just not worth it for the commute, for the footprint uh, commuting to be in these buildings that, quite honestly, many folks don't believe they even should be bothered well, let me say something about that and hand it off to Dick because I know he's got he's got some some thoughts on that. Uh, it's interesting that the U.S. U.S. Open tennis just wrapped up with record attendance. Uh, people do want people do want to come out and socialize, and and so the the, the city has a very valuable role in that. Um, where I work in Lower Manhattan. Uh, it's it's very rapidly becoming a residential neighborhood, except for a strip along Water Street, which is uh, which is partially even there. It's partially residential, and this is a trend that that predated uh, 9/11. Even uh, across the street from my office is a uh, is a, a new Whole Foods that's going into a former bank building at the corner of Broadway and Wall Street. Who would have thought? That you'd see a Whole Foods on Lower Broadway, but but that that's telling you something. Uh, Washington has been has been studying turning the K Street corridor into more of a mixed residential office complex. So we may we may see a rethinking of how the city is zoned, and uh, you know, not with just uh, uh, exclusive office areas and exclusive residential areas. Wow. Uh, I, the jury's out. We're, we're all rethinking the nature of work. Are people go, going to want to come come back to uh, to packed offices? Uh, I don't know. My 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 son co-owns a technology company where everybody, including including he and his partner, are are virtual. So uh, and they have no plans to ever build an office. Their 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 staff is in the Philippines, and and God only knows where where else they are. And their, and their customers are all over the place. And before Harry jumps in, because I just wanted to say, you know, talking to so many people 
about this debate, there is a real divide between socializing and working. There are a lot of folks who feel really comfortable being out and about in a more relaxed uh, social environment, but they just don't see the cost-benefit analysis of the, the working environment. This is the big tension. So, so New York has been, in my view, walking between the raindrops in a lot of ways this whole millennium. Um, after 2001, there were real concerns if the city would ever recover and recovered, including downtown and with new residential areas very quickly. In 2008, as uh, the world economy nearly collapsed, same, and in both cases, low interest federal policies that, that really helped banking here and Wall Street and the, the, the city's recovery played uh, uh, played a role in the city's recovering faster from both recessions than the nation at large. Um, with the pandemic, to date, we've had a much slower recovery. Uh, the nation's recovered, the jobs it's lost, New York is still way behind, uh, you know, train ridership is way down, office occupancy. So while, while there are some good signs, a lot more tourists, uh, you know, a ton of demand for residential spaces. There, there are a lot of concerns, and it does seem a little like a, a, a Mascillian Charybdis setup. In the meantime, you know, uh, Kathy Hochul, the governor, has uh, this new Penn Station plan that parallels the Hudson Yards one in many ways. It has an unclear payoff down the line. It's really an office development plan, not a Penn Station plan. She just signed a bill. Uh, the caps class size only in New York City. So even as the uh, student population has dropped pretty significantly, we're going to have something like 10,000 new teachers. The mayor says that's a uh, unfunded mandate. Um, so as Dick was saying before, it's not quite clear what the controls on good and arguably good and, and valuable programs are just uh, in terms of costs and benefits and what the city and the state can afford. And there do seem to be some indicators that this could be a longer, more difficult recovery than everywhere else. And of course, converting a lot of these office spaces to other uses is very challenging, maybe especially in Midtown, where you have these really big footprints and lots of you know interior spaces that don't naturally have windows or anything else that are hard to convert. So if, as Chrissy was saying, a lot of people don't want to come back to their offices, the city workforce is down significantly in part for that reason. Their lawyers seem to be settling lots of suits that maybe they'd be fighting otherwise. Uh, maybe because there are not enough lawyers to go around. This is impacting other agencies. Eric Adams says people need to come back. Wall Street needs to come back, but people aren't coming back. You know, does New York need to at least prepare for a darker scenario in which this is a, a very difficult struggle and transition, and potentially we're looking at a diminished decade, at least at the same time that we have full democratic control and lawmakers who want new and very ambitious social programs? Well, that's a great question. Uh, New York, uh, New York, to its credit, started a rainy day fund and has built up some reserves, but nowhere, nowhere near enough reserves to cover the kind of deficits that the that the mayor's office projects for the next for the next three years. So so right away there's a problem. So the second problem is uh, one of the reasons people don't want to go back to the office is, is if they have rotten commutes. And I don't just mean rotten commutes from northern Westchester or or the far reaches of Jersey or Connecticut. I mean 
you know, take me an hour and a half to get from from parts of Brooklyn to, to Manhattan. Uh, we have a we have a mess. We have a public transportation system that Dick used to to run that is itself imperiled, has its own set of fiscal cliffs, and uh, uh, needs needs revenue that may or may not be coming from a congestion pricing plan that everybody seems to want to uh, either oppose or seek a loophole for. So I think the city's got some huge, huge fiscal challenges. I know, Dick, you've opined pretty uh, pretty broadly on the MTA's problems and uh, what's going to happen to, to the, you know, to, to the legacy that, that you left. Oh, I, uh, New York City and New York, the region of New York City, will not survive without a mass transit system. That's why when push came to shove, the federal government came along with billions of dollars last year. It's why the Fed lent three billions to the MTA on an emergency basis. Because everybody recognizes you can't have a city like New York without a functioning mass transit system. So my answer is very simple. People are going to begin to come back. Crime on the subway is a serious problem. I have a grandson who takes the subway every, excuse me, every day to school and back. Uh, he is not concerned anymore about safety on the subway. Uh, I think more and more people are slowly going to come back. Nobody's smart enough to tell you how fast that's going to happen. But the revenue shortfall has a lot to do with the decline in ridership that was caused by COVID uh, and the economic and social consequences of COVID. So, but I'm an optimist. I look around this city. Uh, I'm ready to go to see Yankee playoff game. I have my tickets for the Metropolitan Opera. I have my tickets for Carnegie Hall. I mean, I'm not worried at least about the long term. I just hope we elect politicians who are going to be responsible and not spend money that they don't have, not commit money, don't commit new programs that are politically popular, that for which there is inadequate funding, and that they take care of the uh, cliff that we're headed towards when all this federal money is used up. Is that a hope? For the politicians we presently have, or is that a hope that the people of New York will elect those sorts of politicians? And I asked about both executives and, and lawmakers then. It's a hope that our population, and that's why you guys can play a role in this, that the population is aware of all the consequences of who they vote for. So they can't elect somebody who just says, I want to do, I want to increase education. I'm going to have pre-ed for two-year-olds. I'm going to have um, do all these wonderful things. I want the public to say, just, whoa, stop. How the hell are you going to pay for it? And until you're satisfied me that you're going to pay for it out of a reasonable estimate of revenue, then get lost. I'm not voting for you. 
Thank you uh, for that. And I know, um, Bill, if you want to talk a little bit about the upcoming podcast that, that the Volcker Alliance will be releasing, I guess, later this month to talk a lot about some of these financial things. You, you are the experts. We'll just listen to it and, and read some of your policy papers. So if you want to talk a bit about that before we wrap up. Sure. Thank you, Katie. Uh, the Volcker Alliance and the uh, the Penn Institute for Urban Research at University of Pennsylvania, uh, where Dick and I are both fellows. Uh, we have, for the past three years, run a webinar series called Special Briefing, which lives at the intersection of COVID and federal, state, and local fiscal policy. And we put together uh, wonderful programs like this, and we have uh, we have turned this into a podcast, which will be uh, which will be dropping on Apple Podcasts and Google and all your other favorite podcast platforms at the end of September. Uh, and this is where you can hear governors, mayors, Wall Street titans, journalists uh, talk about the exact kind of issues that we're talking about today on a national basis. One quick follow-up for you. What what about, especially for people listening who don't have that much knowledge about these financial problems, what have you found to be the most challenging concept for people to grasp when it comes to these higher-minded financial uh, issues, especially the ones we're facing in New York City? I, I, I think one thing people really need to, to understand and have not over the years is you can't borrow your way out of trouble. Uh, New, York, New York tried this in the 1970s and went flat broke, was minutes away from bankruptcy until people like Dick came along and organized a rescue. Washington, D.C., tried this and went flat broke. Detroit, uh, several cities in California, you can't, uh, you, you can't rely on the, uh, on the kindness of strangers to maintain your, so, your, your social programs and your basic public services. Puerto Rico is, a, is another example. They, they, they borrowed and borrowed and borrowed until they were $70 billion in the hole. That's remarkable for a, a political entity with 3 million people. Uh, so there's $70 billion in a hole, and they have to, and Congress has to design a special bankruptcy system just for Puerto Rico. We don't want to see that happen again, but that's that's the risk. New York has got all kinds of rules and very, very open accounting that that prevent this from happening. But uh as Dick often says, you never met a politician who who does who, who won't borrow uh to uh, to to fund today's needs, uh, and that's that's a that's a problem that people have to understand. Is the emergency aid we've received as our closer here from the feds going to lock in all of these new programs like three K, and has this effectively created a new spending base? These piles, even if New York is nearly invincible and will surely recover, are going to uh, borrow to uh, continue going forward? Great question. Uh, we've done a lot of research on that. New York City and New York State have been largely pretty darn responsible in matching this, this one-term funding with one-term one -term needs like salary bonuses or public health requirements. Um, Universal 3K is is a notable exception because it dips into a, a couple of different federal pots of money, and that money is running out. Uh, that money has to be spent by the end of 
of 2026, uh, December 31st, 2026. So there's, and, and that's about, uh, that's almost 20% of the, of the extraordinary federal aid New York got, New York City got. So that's a program that does not have a visible source of support after the federal money runs out. And you, they can't, and it can't be spread out. So there, that's, we've got a, a lot of parents and very small children and teachers who, who face disappointment unless the city can come up with that, uh, uh, that funding. Dick and Bill, thank you both so much for taking the time this morning. Uh, we really appreciate it. And clearly there's going to be lots here to, uh, to, to return to later, but we've got to weave it there. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. F-A-Q. Thank you for listening to FAQ.NYC. We're now part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash donate if you'd like to pitch in. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and are also a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists online at thebrick.house. A special thank you to our guests, Richard Ravitch and William Glasgow. And thank you to Adam Kamara, who mixed and edited this episode. Be kind, be well, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.